So I want to address three uh, questions. Our general topic is the distinction of essence and existence. And what I first want to talk about is are, are some arguments for the distinction between essence and existence being a real distinction, um, as opposed to merely a linguistic distinction or a distinction in thought, say. And along the way, of course, I'll explain exactly what the distinction is. Secondly, that leads in Aquinas, and this is a topic Aquinas famously addresses in the De Ente. This leads Aquinas to a famous argument for God's existence as the first cause of existence. Uh, I don't want to say too much about that because uh, Fred Ferdoso and Steve Long are going to be addressing natural theology tomorrow, so I don't want to preempt anything they have to say. But I'll say a little bit about that because it's really hard to avoid that once you introduce Aquinas' distinction and the use he wants to make of it and the the significance he thinks it has metaphysically. And then third, I want to address some some common objections to uh, arguments for the real distinction that you see in Aquinas and in later uh, Thomas writers and of uh, the use that's made of that distinction. All right. So let me get right into it then with our our first uh, topic, arguments for the real distinction, of which there are three... Uh, main arguments that I want to address today. But first, let's talk about what the distinction is itself. The world of our experience contains stones, trees, dogs, human beings, and a wide variety of other things. We know that what these things are, and we know that they are part of reality outside our minds. Notice that what we thereby know about them are two distinct things. First, we know again what they are. You know, for instance, that what a human being is is a rational animal. That is the nature or essence of a human being. It doesn't matter for present purposes whether you agree with this traditional Aristotelian definition of a human being or not, though I I probably won't have much of a problem using that as my example in this room. But even if you did, it's just an illustration. Substitute some other definition if you prefer. Second, you know that there really are human beings. That is to say, you know that human beings exist. So we can distinguish between a thing's essence and its existence, between what it is and the fact that it is. Now, some distinctions we draw are merely distinctions between ways in which we might think or talk about things, but don't reflect any difference in reality. For example, we talk about bachelors and we talk about unmarried men, but there's nothing in the things we are talking about themselves that corresponds to this distinction. A bachelor and an unmarried man are in reality exactly the same thing, so that the difference is merely verbal. Is the distinction between a thing's essence and existence like that? Or does the distinction reflect something in things themselves, as they really are apart from our ways of thinking and talking about them? There are several reasons why the distinction between essence and existence must be a real distinction, a distinction that reflects objective mind-independent reality itself and not merely the way we think about it. Consider first that you can know a thing's essence without knowing whether or not it exists. I refer to this here on the outline as uh, the knowledge argument. Uh, You can know a thing's essence without knowing whether or not it exists. Suppose a person had, for whatever reason, never heard of lions, pterodactyls, or unicorns. Suppose you gave him a detailed description of the natures of each. You you then tell him that of these three creatures, one exists, one used to exist but is now extinct, and the third never existed. And you ask him to tell you which is which, given what he now knows about their essences. He would, of course, be unable to do so. But then the existence of the creatures that do exist must be really distinct from their essences. Otherwise, one could know of their existence merely from knowing their essences. For what a thing is, is part of its objective reality. The biological facts about lions and pterodactyls would be exactly the same whether or not we were around to study them. This would be true of unicorns, too, if there were any unicorns. And if a thing exists, then its existence, too, is obviously part of its objective reality. So if the essence and existence of a thing were not distinct features of reality, then knowing the former should suffice for knowing the latter, yet it does not. It might be objected that this argument presupposes that we have a a complete grasp of the essence of a thing, which typically we don't. For unless we had a complete grasp, how could we know whether or not existence was part of a thing's essence? But the objection fails, for there is a crucial disanalogy between what is uncontroversially a part of a thing's essence, on the one hand, and the existence of the thing on the other. Suppose you judge that a lion is a kind of animal, but do not judge that it is a kind of cat. In that case, while you have only incompletely conceived of what it is to be a lion, you have not, for that reason, misconceived what it is to be a lion. By contrast, if you not only fail to judge that a lion is a kind of cat, but positively judge that a lion is not a kind of cat, then you have misconceived what it is to be a lion. Now, if we suppose that you judge that lions don't exist... 
perhaps you think they've gone extinct like pterodactyls or that they are creatures of fiction like unicorns, then while you have judged falsely, you have not misconceived what it is to be a lion. Yet if the existence of a lion were not distinct from its essence, this would not be the case. It would be a misconception. Judging it to be non-existent would be as much to misconceive what it is as judging it to be a non-cat would be. A second reason why the essences of the things of our experience must be distinct from the existence of those things has to do with their contingency, the fact that though they do exist, they could have failed to exist. So this is argument B under uh, Roman numeral one there. For example, lions exist, but had the history of life gone differently, they would not have existed, and it is possible that lions could someday go extinct. Now, if the existence of a contingent thing was not really distinct from its essence, then it would have existence just by virtue of its essence. It would exist by its very nature and would therefore not be contingent at all, but rather necessary. That is to say, it would be something that could not possibly not exist, not even in principle. Hence, since it is not necessary but contingent, its existence must be really distinct from its essence. One might object to this argument that we need not posit a real distinction between a contingent thing's essence and its existence in order to account for its contingency, but can instead point to the facts that it has a cause and that it has the potentiality for non-existence. For example, one might say that a lion is contingent because lions need to be caused, say, by previously existing lions. And if these causes are absent, then a new lion won't come into being. We might note that lions can go out of existence because they have the potentiality to be killed by predators, to, to starve or to catch a disease, and so forth. However, this objection simply misses the point, for we need to know why a contingent thing's existence would need, or indeed could have, a cause in the first place if, it, if it, its existence were not distinct from its essence, and why it has, or indeed could have, a potentiality for non-existence in the first place if its existence were not distinct from its essence. If existence were uh, just part of what it is, then it would not need something else to cause it, and there would not be anything in it that could give it the potential to go out of existence. This brings us to argument three, uh, the, what I call the uniqueness argument on the uh, outline there. A third reason why the essence and existence of each of the things we know through experience must be distinct is that if there is something whose essence and existence are not really distinct, and we will see presently that there is and indeed must be such a thing, then there cannot in principle be more than one such thing. For consider that if some things' essence and existence are not really distinct, then they are identical. And if they are identical in that thing, then that thing would be something whose essence just is existence itself. Now, for there to be more than one thing that just is existence itself, suppose there are two, and label them A and B, then there would have to be something that differentiated them. There would have to be something by virtue of which A and B are distinct things rather than one thing. But what could that be? There are only two possibilities, certainly from the point of view of St. Thomas. A and B might be differentiated in the way that two species of the same genus are differentiated. Or they might be differentiated in the way that two members of the same species are differentiated. And the problem is that on analysis, it turns out that A and B could not be differentiated in either of these ways. Hence, consider the way that two species of the same genus are differentiated. A genus is a more general class of thing, and a species is a more specific class of thing. When we say that human beings are rational animals, we are saying that they as a species fall into the genus animal, and that their being rational is what differentiates them from other species of animal. To use the traditional technical jargon, rationality is thus what is called the specific difference that distinguishes human beings from other species of animal. So for our imagined things A and B to differ as species do, we would have to regard being that to which, being that which just is existence itself. Put scare quotes around that whole phrase. Being that which just is existence itself. Why do people do this when they do scare quotes? Um, we'd have to regard that as a genus and A and B as two species within that genus. And we then have to identify some specific difference that A has that makes it a different species of, quote, being that which just is existence itself from the species B. But the trouble is that if A has such a specific difference, then it will not be that which just is existence itself. Rather, it will be that which just is existence itself plus that specific difference, whatever it is. Compare, a human being is not animality itself, but rather animality plus the specific difference rationality. The same will be true of B. 
to be differentiated from A, it will also have to be that which just is existence itself plus its own specific difference. So there's no way to distinguish two things which just are existence itself in the way that two different species of the same genus are differentiated. That path will not, will not work. So consider now instead the way that two members of the same species are differentiated. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle are different members of the same species human being. Fido, Rover, and Spot are different members of the same species dog, and so forth. The way these members are differentiated is by virtue of being associated with different parcels of matter. The matter that makes up Socrates' body is different from that which makes up Plato's or Aristotle's body. The matter that makes up Fido's body is different from that which makes up Rover's or Spot's, and so on. Of course, there are other differences between these individuals. Socrates' brain, for example, will be wired in ways that are different from the way that Aristotle's brain is wired. Fido might have a different color of fur than spot, and so forth. But these other differences presuppose different parcels of matter uh, in which the brain wiring, the fur color, etc., adhere. So though Socrates and Plato are both human, they can differ because Socrates is humanity plus this particular bit of matter, whereas Plato is humanity plus that other particular bit of matter. <clears throat> and something similar can be said for different members of other species. But then it should be obvious why we cannot differentiate two things A and B, each of which is that which just is existence itself, quote-unquote, in the way that different members of a species are differentiated. For, so differentiated, A and B will not, after all, be that which just is existence itself. Rather, A will be that which just is existence itself plus this particular bit of matter, and B will be that which just is existence itself plus that other particular bit of matter. Compare, Socrates is again humanity plus this particular bit of matter, in which case Socrates is not humanity itself. <coughs> Excuse me. In general, for there to be more than one thing which just is that which is existence itself, there would, um, there would have to be something that made it the case that this instance of that which just is existence itself differed from that instance. And each such instance would then not really be that which just is existence itself after all, but rather that which just is existence itself plus whatever the differentiating feature is. So there really is no sense to be made of there being more than one of something which just is existence itself. And in that case, there is no way to make sense of there being more than one of something whose essence and existence are not really distinct. If there is such a thing, then, it will be absolutely unique. Now, the things of our experience are not unique in this way. With stones, trees, dogs, human beings, etc., there is, or there certainly could be in cases where the class has been reduced to a single member, more than one of each of these kinds of things. Therefore, there is in each of these things a real distinction between its essence and its existence. Now, a possible objection to this third argument is that it neglects a middle possibility. For why couldn't there be something whose existence is not distinct from its essence, not because its essence just is existence itself, but rather because existence is part of its essence? But on reflection, this suggestion makes no sense. Consider that the essence of human beings a rational animality, has rationality and animality as its parts. Suppose existence were another part of this essence, alongside of these. Then the existence of the whole human being would depend on this part. But that is no more plausible than saying that the whole human essence, namely rational animality, depends on animality alone. Now, if someone insisted that the whole human essence really does depend on animality alone, then that would make animality itself the true essence. And similarly, if someone insisted that the whole human being depended on existence, considered as a part of the human essence, then this would make existence the true essence. But then we'd be back to the thesis that a thing in which there is no distinction between its essence and its existence is a thing whose essence just is existence itself which is exactly what the objector was trying to avoid. So there really is no middle ground between the case where a thing's essence and existence are really distinct and the case where the essence just is existence itself. Note that to say that a thing's essence and existence are really distinct is not to say that they can exist separa uh, separately. 
it does not entail, say, that a stone's essence is a kind of object and its existence is another object where either object might exist apart from the other. A real distinction between two things sometimes involves separability, but not always. For example, two dogs, or a dog and its leg, are really distinct, and each might exist apart from the other. By contrast, and uh, quoting a passage here from uh, David Oderberg, quote, consider a circle. It has both a radius and a circumference. There is obviously a real distinction between the properties having a radius and having a circumference. This is not because when confining ourselves to circles, having a radius can never exist apart from having a circumference. The radius of a circle is really distinct from its circumference as proved by the fact that the latter is twice the former multiplied by pi. Since the radius is part of the property having a radius and the circumference is part of the property having a circumference, the properties themselves are really distinct, though inseparable. The same is true for a triangularity and trilaterality." Unquote. Similarly, there is no such thing in mind-independent reality as a thing's essence existing apart from its existence, whatever that would mean, or a thing's existence existing apart from its essence, whatever that would mean. The essence of a stone or a tree or a dog or a human being is not separable from its essence. Sorry, from its existence. Still, as with the radius and circumference of a circle or the triangularity and trilaterality of a triangle, the essence of each of these things is really distinct from its existence. Okay, now, that completes the third of these three arguments for the real distinction, the uniqueness argument. So we want to move on to the second topic. Uh, namely, the first cause of existence. <clears throat> so which each, which, with each of the things we know through experience, there is a real distinction between its essence and its existence. How is it, then, that these two different aspects of a thing are combined into a whole? It might seem that their inseparability provides the answer. They are together, so it might be claimed, because the essence of a thing and its existence are as inseparable as the radius and circumference of a circle are or as triangularity and trilaterality are. But this is no answer because it just raises the question of why they are inseparable. Now, the answer in the case of the radius and circumference of a circle is that these both follow from the essence or nature of a circle. Anything having that essence is going to have the properties having a radius and having a circumference. Similarly, anything having the essence of a triangle is going to have the property trilaterality, which follows from that essence. However, we cannot in the same way explain how the essence of one of the things of our experience is conjoined with its existence. In particular, it cannot be that its existence follows from its essence. The reason is implicit in what has already been said. If you know the essence of a circle, then you will know that any circle will exhibit the properties having a radius and having a circumference. And if you know the essence of a triangle, then you will know that it will exhibit the property triangularity. But as we've seen, you can know the essence of a lion, pterodactyl, or unicorn without knowing one way or the other whether any of these animals exists. Hence, the existence of one of these things does not follow from its essence in the way that the properties having a radius and having a circumference follow from the essence of a circle, or the way that the property triangularity ha uh, follows from the essence of a triangle. We also have noted that the things of our experience exist in a merely contingent way, which is why they come into being and pass away, rather than in a necessary way. For this reason, too, their existence cannot follow from their essence, for if it did, then they would exist necessarily. And while with something whose essence just is existence itself, its existence would naturally follow from its essence, we also saw that there can in principle be only one such thing. Hence, with things of which there is more than one instance, stones, trees, dogs, human beings, etc., it cannot be the case that they are things whose essence is identical with their existence, and thus it cannot be the case that their existence follows from their essence. That's not going to be the explanation of how the essence and existence get together. Nor can it be the case that the things of our experience somehow impart existence to themselves, adding it, as it were, to their essences from outside. The very suggestion would be incoherent. A thing can't impart or add something, or indeed do anything at all for that matter, unless it first exists. But a thing whose essence and existence are distinct cannot exist until existence is added or imparted to its essence. Naturally, then, a thing whose essence and existence are distinct cannot impart existence to its own essence, for in that case, it would have to exist before it exists so as to cause itself to exist, which makes no sense. Nothing can be the cause of its own existence. 
And so nothing in which there is a distinction between its essence and its existence can in any way be the source of its own existence. Its existence must be caused by something outside it, something which adds existence to its essence as it were. This is uh, what I'm getting at here in, in uh, point A under Roman 2 there. Uh, anything with an essence existence composition requires a cause. Everyday experience would agree insofar as it tells us that stones, trees, dogs, human beings, etc. have causes. But the dependence of these things on a cause for their existence is more radical than everyday experience would indicate. For notice that everything said so far applies to a thing not only before it comes into being and as it comes into being, but always, even after it has come into being. For example, consider a certain dog, Fido. Fido's existence is distinct from Fido's essence, it doesn't follow from Fido's essence, and it cannot be imparted by Fido to his essence. All of these things are true not only before Fido exists and at the time he is conceived, but also after he comes into being, and indeed at every moment at which he is alive. Fido's existence here and now is distinct from his essence and doesn't follow from, and doesn't follow from his essence. So, here and now, there must be some cause which adds or imparts existence to that essence. Otherwise, Fido wouldn't exist here and now any more than he did before he was conceived. He would blink out of existence or be annihilated. Nor can Fido be what is adding or imparting existence to his own essence here and now any more than he could, than he could have before he was conceived. For Fido cannot do anything at all, not even for an instant, unless he exists at that instant. Among the things he cannot do, unless he exists at that instant, is to impart existence, either to himself or to anything else. So his causing his own existence at that instant presupposes his own existence at that instant. Hence, the notion of Fido or anything else imparting existence to its own essence, even at a particular instant, is incoherent. A thing cannot cause its own existence at any moment, any one moment of time, any more than it can cause it over a series of moments spread out through time. <coughs> Excuse me. So... Anything whose essence is distinct from its existence must have a cause of its existence at any moment that it exists, here and now, and not merely at some point in the past. We're not talking about temporally, uh, temporally ordered series of causes here, as we'll see. To stick with the example of Fido, he must therefore have a cause which here and now imparts existence to his essence. Let's label this cause whatever it is C for cause, right? And just to... Uh, Add a little excitement. Here's a visual aid. Wow, okay. <laughs> the excitement is palpable. <laughs> okay, so let's label this Fido, which requires a sustaining cause. I like to, I could draw Fido and then the, the, the letter above him, but I like the idea of the first cause being like a foundation or pedestal on which things rest, so I'm gonna go that direction. So Fido sustained in being by this cause C. Okay, now suppose that C, like Fido, is something whose own essence is distinct from its existence. Then what we said about Fido and about the other things of our experience applies no less to C. C, too, must have a cause here and now, which imparts existence to its essence. Let's call this further cause B. Okay. Just the, the excitement is mounting. Okay, so B is the sustaining cause of C. Suppose that B, like Fido and like C, is also something whose essence is distinct from its existence. Then B, here and now, will require a cause of his own, which we might label A. We're running out of board here, so we better, better stop the regress. Don't worry. Help's on the way. Okay. So B here and now will require a cause of his own, which we might label A. And of course, what was said about C and B will apply also to A, if A is something whose essence is distinct from its existence. I refer to A as he, but it could be it, it could be anything, it doesn't matter exactly what we're talking about here. Now, what we, what we have here is what is sometimes called a hierarchical causal series, or a causal series, or causal series ordered per se, or an essentially ordered causal series, there are different labels for it, in contrast to a linear causal series, also known as an accidentally ordered causal series. In a linear causal series, the later members of the series have causal power that is built in or independent of the earlier members. To take a stock example, if Al begets Bob and Bob begets Chuck, Chuck can go on to beget a son of his own, regardless of whether Bob, Al, or any earlier member of the series continues to exist. His power to beget is inherent to him. <coughs> Excuse me. 
By contrast, in a hierarchical causal series, the later members have whatever causal power they have because they derive or borrow it from a first member which has its causal power in a built-in or underived way. Stock example, Aquinas' stock example, it would be a stone which is pushed by a stick which is uh, pushed by a man who holds it in his hand. The stick has power to move the stone, but only insofar as such power is imparted to it by the man. And at every moment it has that power, it is only because, at that very moment, simultaneously, the man is imparting that power to it. But the man himself has power to move in an underived or built-in way. No one has to pick him up and move him in order for him to move the stick, the way that the stick has to be picked up and moved if it's going to move the stone. Now, a linear series, that's a linear series, can in principle be infinite or without a first member, as far as Aquinas is concerned and as, as far as Aquinas and Thomas in general are concerned, because there is no need to trace what any particular member is doing um, to the action of a first member. For example, there's no need to trace Bob's begetting of Chuck to anything Al is doing at the time of this begetting. But a hierarchical series must have a first member. If there weren't someone or something moving the stick, which is not itself being moved, but just has built-in power to move other things, the stick and stone would not be moving at all. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, now it's that second hierarchical sort of series that we're talking about in this particular causal series that we've been setting out here. Again, Fido's having existence imparted to it by C, which is having existence, existence imparted to it by B, which is having existence imparted to it in turn by A, amounts to a hierarchical causal series. The reason is not merely that the causes and effects are all simultaneous. Fido is caused by C, which is simultaneously being caused by B, which is simultaneously being caused by A. But more fundamentally, because none of the causes mentioned so far can act independently of some prior cause. That's really the heart of what makes it a, a hierarchical or essentially ordered series. C, in particular C, can impart existence to Fido's essence only insofar as C's own essence has existence imparted to it by B. And B can do this imparting only insofar as its own essence has existence imparted to it by A. Now, as I've said, in the nature of the case, this sort of causal series cannot regress infinitely. There would be no such series at all unless there were a cause which is first or primary in the sense that it can cause without having, in the very act of causing, to be caused itself. In the present case, such a cause would be one which can, part, which can impart existence without having to derive it. Now, nothing whose essence is distinct from its existence could be such a cause, since, as we've seen, anything like that has to have existence imparted to it. The first or primary cause in the present series, then, can only be something the very essence of which is identical to existence, something which just is existence itself. For since, since it just is existence itself, since it's identical with existence itself, it need not and indeed could not derive its existence from anything else. Its existence is, as it were, built in. It is not merely one existing thing alongside, um, other, uh, alongside other existing things, but is rather what Aquinas calls subsistent existence itself. That terminates our regress here. So for Fido to exist here and now in any moment, his existence must here and now be caused whether directly or indirectly, by something the essence of which is identical to its existence, something which just is subsistent existence itself. And that entails for St. Thomas that it must be caused by God. Now, why should we identify that which just is subsistent existence itself with God? <coughs> Excuse me. Consider first that what we've said about Fido applies to each and every one of the things that we know from experience. Stones, trees, lions, human beings, and so on. <coughs> Excuse me. And indeed, to anything the essence of which is distinct from its existence, including immaterial things like angels and disembodied souls. The, <coughs> the existence of any such thing at any moment will have to be caused by something whose essence just is existence itself, for the same sorts of reasons that Fido has to be. Consider also that, as we've seen, there can in principle be only one thing whose essence just is existence itself. And consider further that things whose essence is distinct from their existence and a thing whose essence is identical with its existence exhaust the possible kinds of things that there are. So if there can only be one thing of the latter type, then everything else that exists must be of the former type. And since everything of the former type depends upon that one thing of the latter type, it follows that everything that exists other than that which is subsistent existence itself must be caused by 
that which just is, subsistent existence itself. Hence, that which is subsistent existence itself is absolutely unique and the cause of everything other than itself. That, of course, is one of the central characteristics of God, what it is to be divine. It's to be the cause of everything other than itself. On analysis, we've seen that this cause of existence we've worked to is like that. We've also seen that something which just is existence itself would exist in a necessary rather than contingent way. For since its very essence would just be existence itself, it would not, and indeed could not, fail to exist. Nor for that reason would it, uh, or could it, have existence imparted to it. It would therefore have to be an uncaused cause of the existence of all other things. And so what has been said so far shows that that which is subsistent existence itself is a unique, necessarily existing, uncaused cause of everything other than itself. That's already a a big chunk of the traditional description of God. You could really say you've got to God now, and the only further question is, what else can we say about God's nature? Now consider the relationship of the concepts that we've been discussing to the concepts of potentiality and actuality, famously deployed by Aristotle in response to Parmenides and Zeno's denial of the reality of change. As Aquinas emphasized, in a thing whose essence is distinct from its existence, its essence and existence are related as potentiality and actuality. Phido's essence, for example, <coughs> excuse me, Phido's essence, for example, by itself amounts to only a potential thing, not an actual thing. Only when Phido's essence has existence imparted to it is there an actual thing, namely Phido. Now, if essence considered by itself as a kind of potentiality and existence considered by itself as a kind of actuality, then that which just is existence, that which just is subsistent existence itself, rather than merely one derivatively existing thing alongside others, must be purely actual. It could not have some potentiality for existence that needs to be actualized, for then it would not be something which just is existence, but rather would be merely yet some other thing to which existence must be imparted. Now, an argument from the distinction between actuality and potentiality to the existence of a purely actual cause is the core of the central Aristotelian argument for the existence of God, an argument first set out in Aristotle's Physics, deployed by Aquinas in the first of his five ways, and set out in various other versions by Aristotelian philosophers over the centuries. When we arrive at the conclusion that a cause of existence, which just is subsistent existence itself, must be purely actual, uh, Aquinas' argument in the Deente, then, which I've been defending here, dovetails with this distinct Aristotelian proof. For when the implications of the latter argument are worked out, the Aristotelian argument are worked out, turns out there can be, in principle, only one thing which is purely actual. Pure act is also something which Aquinas argues on analysis is going to be in the nature of the case unique. Hence, the purely actual prime unmoved mover to which the Aristotelian argument leads, and that which just is subsistent existence itself to which the Thomistic argument of the Deente leads, are really the same one cause of, of things arrived at from different starting points. Now, much more could be said about why the first cause of existence would have to have various other divine attributes. And various objections to the argument for a first cause would also need to be considered and rebutted in a, in a complete treatment of that subject. But I'll put all that to one side, to issues of natural theology to one side and what follows, since they're tangential to my main purpose, which is to address the essence-existence distinction. And since, as I say, I say uh, Fred Fredoso and Steve Long will be addressing uh, these issues uh, in their own talks. So let's turn instead to some objections against the arguments for the real distinction between essence and existence. So this brings me to the, um, the third part of the outline here. Some objections rebutted. And the first I, I refer to as Kenny's critique, if you can't read my writing there. Anthony Kenny has been highly critical of the Thomistic doctrine of the real distinction between a thing's essence and existence. I think in his um, first treatment of this, in his little book on Aquinas in the Past Master Series, Oxford, Oxford's Past Master Series, I think he use, actually uses the phrase sophistry and illusion. He gets his hume on, you know, in, in attacking Aquinas. I think he's a little, a little less unkind in his book Aquinas on Being, which came out much later. But, but still, the, the heart of the critique is the same across, uh, across both books. Barring from the logician Gottlob Frege, Kenny distinguishes between two notions of existence. The first is what he calls specific existence, which is expressed by the existential quantifier in modern logic. 
Specific existence, that is to say, is what is captured in statements of the form, quote, there is an X such that, dot, 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 and you complete the formula. It has to do with whether or not there is an instance of a certain species, hence specific existence. Specific existence, on this view, is thus a second-order predicate of concepts rather than a first-order predicate of individual objects. And a statement like, quote, there is an X such that X is F, is true of a concept F when F is actually exemplified. Kenny's second notion of existence is what he calls individual existence, specific existence versus individual existence. Um, an individual existence is what is captured in statements like, quote, the Great Pyramid still exists, but the Library of Alexandria does not, unquote. Individual existence, that is to say, is just that which the Library of Alexandria lost when it was destroyed, but which the Great Pyramid still has. It has to do with what is true of an individual rather than a species. Now, the Thomistic uh, argument maintains that essence and existence are identical in God, but really distinct in everything else. But in Kenny's view, this cannot be true on either notion of existence, whether we're talking about specific or individual existence. So suppose we read the Thomistic claim in terms of specific existence. In that case, Kenny argues, either essence and existence are as distinct in God as they are in everything else, or the Thomistic position is simply nonsensical. For what can it intelligibly mean to say that the essence of a thing is distinct from its specific existence is merely something like what is captured in the statement, quote, we can know what a unicorn is without knowing whether there is an X such that X is a unicorn. But by the same token, we can know what God is without knowing whether there is an X such that X is God. Yet if the Thomist is insisting that essence and specific existence are not distinct in God, then his position is not even intelligible, Kenny says. Because in that case, it amounts to saying something like, quote, God's essence is such that there is an X such that, okay, which is just gibberish. Suppose, then, that what the Thomist has in mind is not specific existence, but rather this alternative category that Kenny's uh, willing to acknowledge, individual existence. Unlike specific existence, individual existence can intelligibly be predicated of a thing. It makes sense to say of the Great Pyramid that it still exists, or of Fido that he still exists. And what this amounts to, Kenny says, is just um, for Fido to go on being what he is, namely a dog. That's really what it means to say that Fido continues to exist. He just goes on being what he is, namely a dog. So if we insist on saying that God's essence and existence are identical, then in Kenny's view, this is intelligible if what we mean is just that if God exists, then he goes on being what he, what he is, namely God. But in that case, essence and existence will be identical not only in God, but also in Fido and in everything else. In having individual existence, they too all go on being what they are. Okay, and in that case, to say God's essence and existence are identical is, is nothing special. It's, it's not unique to God. Okay, so that's Kenny's critique. Now, there's several problems with Kenny's critique, um, some of which have been ably exposed by Gila Klima in uh, a couple of writings. For one thing, when arguing that the notion of individual existence cannot salvage the Thomas position, Kenny evidently supposes that a real distinction entails separability. Kenny writes, quote, Can we say that Fido's essence and Fido's existence are distinct? If a real distinction between A and B means that we can have one without the other, then it seems that the answer must be in the negative, unquote. But as Klima points out, and for the reasons I set out earlier, a real distinction does not entail separability. Certainly it begs the question against the Thomist merely to assume otherwise, as Kenny seems to be doing. Hence, Fido's being what he is, namely his essence, need not be identical to his individual existence, even if we can't have the one without the other, even if they're not separable. And for all that Kenny has shown, the arguments for the real distinction that we've considered show that they are not identical. Kenny begs the question against the Thomist in a much deeper way, however, by assuming that the Fregian notions of existence that he countenances are the only respectable ones. For the Thomist wouldn't agree with such an assumption in the first place. Now, a standard argument for the view that the notion of specific existence is the only legitimate one is that if existence were a first-level predicate of objects, then it is claimed negative existential statements like, quote, Martians do not exist, unquote, would be self-contradictory, which they obviously are not. For if we think of this statement as saying that Martians do not have the attribute of existence, then this would seem to entail that there are, i.e. that there exist, certain creatures, namely Martians, who lack existence. Since that is absurd, the statement, quote, Martians do not exist, 
cannot be interpreted as denying an attribute of existence to some object or objects. It should rather be interpreted in terms of the notion of specific existence as saying something like, quote, it is not the case that there is at least one X such that X is a Martian, unquote. That is to say, it says of the concept of being a Martian that there is nothing to which it applies. Okay, that's the Fregean sort of, Anthony Kenny sort of argument uh, for uh, Frege's notion of existence covering, his notions covering all the territory. <coughs> Excuse me. However, as John Canassus has argued, regarding existence as a first-level predicate need not have the absurd implication that a statement like Martians do not exist is self-contradictory. For this would follow only if, when we grasp the concept Martians, we necessarily grasp it as applying to something existing in reality. So that, quote, Martians do not exist would amount to uh, the statement that the existing Martians do not exist, which, of course, is self-contradictory. Um, state, uh, statements attributing existence or non-existence to a thing, Canassus says, do not function, in fact, in that way. They do not function logically in the same way that other attributive statements do. In particular, their subjects are grasped in an existence-neutral way. In the case at hand, our mere grasp of the concept Martians does not by itself entail either a judgment that they exist or a judgment that they do not, but leaves the question open. So this, a statement like Martians do not exist uh, thus says not, quote, the existing Martians do not exist, which of course would be absurd, but rather it says something like, on Canassus' view, says something like, quote, Martians, which are of themselves existentially neutral, do not in fact exist, unquote. In general, for the Thomist, when the mind grasps the essence of a thing, it grasps it as something distinct from its existence or lack thereof, even if that of which the existence is ultimately predicated is the thing itself and not a mere concept. There is, in any event, ample reason to doubt that the notion of specific existence captures everything that needs to be captured by an analysis of existence. Consider that um, when we are told uh, that cats exist means, quote, there is at least one X such that X is a cat, or that something falls under the concept being a cat, there's still the question of what makes this the case, of what is it exactly in virtue of which there is something falling under this concept. And the answer to this further question um, is, as Canassus and others have pointed out, what the Thomist is getting at when he argues that the existence of a thing is distinct from its, from its essence, in this case from the essence of a cat, and must be imparted to it so as to actualize what is otherwise merely potential, if the thing is to be real. One of the arguments considered earlier uh, for the real distinction between a thing's essence and its existence rested on the premise that we can know a thing's essence without knowing whether or not it exists. So now moving on to another line of criticism distinct from Kenny's, and this is actually point B, so where you, there's no way you can read that because I can barely read it. Substitutivity of identicals and intentional context. Okay, so a critic might object that the inference to a real distinction uh, is invalid in what I call the, the knowledge argument. You can know the essence of something without knowing whether or not it exists. A critic might object that that inference uh, to a real distinction is invalid on the grounds that what logicians call the substitutivity of identicals breaks down in intentional contexts. Hence, for example, aspirin is acetyl salicylic acid, but if I know that aspirin is a pain reliever, it does not follow that I know that acetyl salicylic acid is a pain reliever. The concept of aspirin is distinct from the concept of acetyl salicylic acid, which is why I might know the first without knowing the second, but this does not entail that aspirin and acetyl salicylic acid are really distinct. Similarly, the critic might argue, I might know what a lion or a unicorn is without knowing whether they exist, but it does not follow that the essence of either a lion or a unicorn is different from its existence. What is true is merely that the concept of a lion is different from the concept of its existence, and the concept of a unicorn different from the concept of its existence. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, in response to this sort of objection, uh, Julia Klima, again to appeal to him, points out that the lesson we should draw from a breakdown of the substitutivity of identicals, <coughs> excuse me, in an intentional context, depends on whether or not the concepts involved are logically independent. Even if I clearly and fully grasp the concept of aspirin, I might know that something is aspirin without knowing that it is currently less popular and analgesic than acetaminophen. 
That is not surprising given that the concept of aspirin is logically independent of the concept of being currently less popular an analgesic than acetaminophen. Those are logically independent concepts. But suppose I have only some vague and confused knowledge of what aspirin is. For example, I may know only that it is some sort of chemical substance commercially sold for the purpose of relieving pain, but know nothing about its chemistry. In that case, I certainly might know that something is aspirin without knowing that it is acetyl salicylic acid. However, if I have a complete knowledge of the chemical essence of aspirin, I could not fail to know that it is acetyl salicylic acid. For the concept of aspirin, when clearly and fully grasped, is not logically independent of the concept of acetyl salicylic acid. So there's, a, uh, there's an asymmetry here between the two cases. Now, if the essence of something, a lion, for example, were really identical to its existence, then the situation should be like this latter case. That is to say, a clear and complete knowledge of a lion's essence should entail knowledge of its existence. Just like if you had a, comp a complete and clear knowledge of the nature of aspirin, you would know that it's a settled salicylic acid. Yet it is not, in fact, true of a lion, or a stone, or a tree, or of any of the other things of our experience, that if we had a, cl a clear and complete knowledge of its essence, we would know its existence. <coughs> now, the critic might respond at this point that this begs the question in supposing that even a full and complete knowledge of some thing's essence wouldn't yield knowledge of its existence. But as Klima points out, a charge of circularity against an argument can be rebutted if we have independent reason to believe the premises. In this case, as Klima notes, if I know the essence of some thing which is of a certain kind, then I will know a priori of any other thing of that kind that does exist, has existed, or will exist, or could exist, that will have the attributes entailed by being a thing of that kind. But I will not know a priori whether any other thing of that kind, in fact, does exist, has existed, or will exist. I could know that only a posteriori. Now, this gives us a reason to think that knowing the essence of a thing does not entail knowing its existence, and it is a reason that I could have whether or not it even occurs to me to ask about whether essence and existence are identical. Hence, I could accept the Thomistic argument for the real distinction without begging the question. I could have an independent reason for believing the key premise. A point made earlier is also relevant to answering the critic's allegation of circularity. Suppose I know that aspirin is a pain reliever, but not that it is acetyl salicylic acid. Then I have an incomplete conception of what aspirin is, but I have not thereby misconceived of what aspirin is. However, if I judge that aspirin is not acetyl salicylic acid, then I have misconceived of what it is. By contrast, if I judge that aspirin does not exist, then while I have judged falsely, I have not misconceived of what aspirin is. Now, this sort of example gives one reason to believe that correctly conceiving of a thing's essence can come apart from knowing whether it exists. And it does so whether or not it has occurred to one to ask whether essence and existence are identical. Hence, we have another non-question-begging reason for thinking that a full and complete knowledge of a thing's essence would not entail knowledge of its existence. Now, just as some have raised questions about the existence side of the distinction between essence and existence, so too might some critics raise questions about the essence side. This brings us to the last point here, uh, anti-essentialism. Recall that the essence of a thing is its nature, that whereby it is what it is. For the Thomist, it is what we grasp intellectually when we identify a thing's genus and its specific difference. Again, the traditional definition of a human being as a rational animal gives animal as the genus under which human beings fall, and rationality as that which differentiates human beings as the species they are within that genus, hence specific difference. If the definition is correct, it gives us the essence of a human being. Now, that we describe things as if they have essences is obvious. It's also obvious that the essences of some things are, at least in part, the product of convention. What makes something a carburetor or a can opener, for example, is determined by the purposes for which we make such artifacts. For Thomists, and for many other philosophers, however, the essences of at least some things, and in particular of natural objects or substances, are real or mind-independent as opposed to being merely the products of convention. And essentialism is the thesis that there are such real essences. Okay. Now, I, I, I suppose I should throw in at this point just a tangential remark that the kind of essentialism that I'm here attributing to Aquinas and other Thomas is not the kind of essentialism that Gilson famously attacks when he argues that Thomism is existentialist rather than essentialist. That's a different debate, and so um, he's just using the term in a different way. 
But can it be proven that natural objects have real mind-independent essences or natures? Might a critic not hold instead that all essences are conventional? One way to approach this issue would be to follow Aristotle's view expressed in Book Two of the Physics that it would be absurd to try to prove that things have natures. The idea is not that it is doubtful that things have natures or essences, but rather that it is obvious that they do. Indeed, that the belief that things have essences is more obviously correct than any argument that can be given for or against it. It should be added, by the way, that when the Aristotelian says this, the claim is not that it's obvious that the essence of a dog is such and such, or the essence of stone is such and such. That may require all sorts of scientific investigation. It's just the more generic claim that things have essences. There are essences somewhere lurking under the appearances, say. If we're dealing with a, an artifact, for example, uh, which is a really a, an aggregate of substances having their own substantial forms, the, the substances at least would have essences. So it's not a dogmatic claim that what common sense takes to be the essence is actually the essence. Finding the actual essence may take some work. What the claim is is just that, that things have natures or essences of some sort or other. Somewhere or other in the world there are such things. That's what he takes to be obvious and not in need of argument. Now, again, the idea then is not, not that it's doubtful that things have natures or essences. That's, why we, that's not the reason why Aristotle would recommend against trying to prove it, but rather it is obvious that they have them. Indeed, that the belief that things have essences is more obviously correct than any argument that can be given for or against it. It is, so the Thomists would argue, only by making highly controversial and indeed dubious philosophical assumptions that the reality of essence could seriously be doubted. You've got to, you've got to do a lot of high-level philosophy. You need to be very learned before you can start doubting the obvious, right? You've got to... You've got to I mean, it's a, it's, it's a bar, but I also mean it. I mean, it's, you, you, you have to theorize the world in a fairly complex way, a Kantian way, a Humean way, some other kind of anti-realist way before you can come to, to take seriously these sorts of doubts. However, since there are those who doubt it, more needs to be said. We can't just rest with that. To begin with, we can note that the world is just the way we'd expect it to be if things really have essences. In particular, things exhibit the unity that we would expect them to have if they had real essences in two respects. For one thing, they are related to one another in a way that exhibits unity. This oak tree, that one, and the other one are united in a way that they are not united to stones, dogs, or people. This polar bear, that one, and the other one are united to one another in a similar way. This sample of copper, that one, and the third one are so united as well, and so on. These groups of things manifest common causal powers and other properties in just the way we would expect if there were a common real essence or nature they all instantiated but which would be mysterious, indeed it would seem to be a miracle, um, if their being grouped together was merely a matter of human convention. For another thing, each individual exhibits a unity of its own. An oak, a polar bear, and a sample of copper will each behave over time in a uniform and predictable manner, exhibiting characteristic properties and patterns of operation, persisting despite changes in superficial features, and having parts that function in an integrated way. This, too, is just what we would expect if each of these things had a real essence or nature and would be mysterious if what we thought of as their essences were merely a matter of human convention. Okay, so I'm giving here kind of a, a rough-and-ready, no-miracles argument, to use Hilary Putnam's famous expression in the context of scientific realism, but in this case for realism about essences. Obviously, that would be spelled out further, but that's kind of an, uh, a rough-and-ready statement of that argument. Now, of course, whether certain natural objects really should be grouped into the same class or not, and exactly which properties and operations a given object persistently exhibits, might sometimes be difficult questions to settle. <coughs> Excuse me. Precisely what a thing's essence is is by no means always easy to determine. But these considerations by themselves do not cast doubt on the reality of essence. Common caricatures aside, no serious essentialist believes that the natures of things can always be discovered easily, from the armchair, as it were, or from everyday experience. What is at issue at the moment is, in any case, not what the essences of various things are, or whether we can always discover them, but whether they are nevertheless there, even if we can't always discover what they are. And the point is that the unity and order of things would be mystifying if essence were not a pervasive feature of mind-independent reality. That much is evident from common sense, but both the practice and results of modern science reinforce the point. As to the practice, philosophers of science of what is sometimes called the new essentialist school have, as the name implies, argued that physical science is in the business of discovering the essences as well as the causal powers of things, insofar as the powers that science aims to uncover 
are powers things have, essentially. As philosopher science Nancy Cartwright emphasizes, the sorts of regularities that the hard sciences tend to uncover are rarely observed, and in fact are in ordinary circumstances impossible to observe. Beginning students of physics quickly become acquainted with idealizations, like the notion of a frictionless surface, and with the fact that laws like Newton's law of gravitation, strictly speaking, describe the behavior of bodies only in the circumstance where no interfering forces are acting on them, a circumstance which never actually holds. Moreover, physicists do not, in fact, embrace irregularity as a law of nature only after many trials, after the fashion of popular <coughs> presentations of inductive reasoning. Rather, they draw their conclusions from a few highly specialized experiments conducted un under artificial conditions. Now, this is exactly what we should expect if what science is concerned with is discovering the hidden natures or essences of things. Actual experimental practice indicates that what physicists are really looking for are the powers that a thing will manifest when interfering conditions are removed. And the fact that a few experiments, or even a single controlled experiment in some cases, are taken to establish the results in question indicates that these powers are taken to reflect a nature or essence that is universal to things of that type. Hence, Cartwright uh, writes, quote, modern experimental physics looks at the world under precisely controlled or highly contrived circumstances. And in the best of cases, one look is enough. And that, I claim, is just, just how one looks for natures, unquote. Philosopher of science Brian Ellis takes the view that essences are necessary in order to ground laws of nature. And as Ellis also notes, the actual results of modern science, let alone the practice or method, support the claim that there are natural kinds of thing, each with its own essence. Quoting from Brian Ellis, he says, quote, every distinct type of chemical substance would appear to be an example of a natural kind, since the known kinds of chemical substances all exist independently of human knowledge and understanding, and the distinctions between them are all real and absolute. Of course, we could not have discovered the differences between the kinds of chemical substances without much scientific investigation. But these differences were not invented by us or chosen pragmatically to impose order on an otherwise amorphous mass of data. There is no continuous spectrum of chemical variety that we had somehow to categorize. The chemical world is just not like that. On the contrary, it gives every appearance of being a world made up of substances of chemically discrete kinds, each with its own distinctive chemical properties. To suppose otherwise is to make nonsense of the whole history of chemistry since Lavoisier, unquote. <coughs> Excuse me. The view that all essences are conventional, even if one wanted to reject what Cartwright and Ellis and these other philosophers of science who have no Thomistic axe to grind, if one rejected all that, what they had to say, the view that all essences are conventional, if you had an across-the-board anti-essentialism, is in any event ultimately incoherent, as has been pointed out by philosopher Crawford Elder uh, in his book, I think it's Real Natures and Familiar Objects or something like that. Um, the conventionalist holds that a thing's essence, that whereby it is what it is, is a product of our ways of thinking, of our linguistic habits, and so forth. It is, in short, mind-dependent. But for the consistent conventionalist, this would also have to be true of the human mind itself. Whether we identify the mind with the brain or think of it as something immaterial, that's irrelevant, that's immaterial, get it? Okay. Um, conventionalism would have to be as true of the human mind as of everything else. That is to say, what makes the mind what it is would have to be mind-dependent, dependent on our, our ways of thinking, our linguistic conventions, etc. But for something to be mind-dependent entails that it presupposes, and is thus posterior to, ontologically if not temporally, the existence of the mind. Yet the mind will necessarily be prior to that which depends upon it, to that which exists only relative to its ways of thinking and its linguistic habits. Hence, the consistent conventionalist will have to say that the mind is both prior to itself and posterior to itself, but that makes no sense. So, we cannot coherently take a conventionalist view about our own essence, or at least about the essences of our minds. That there is at least one real essence, our essence, cannot be denied then. And Elder's point can be supplemented as follows. The arguments for conventionalism would, if they had any force at all, apply to us just as much as to anything else. Yet we know that they're wrong when applied to us. What reason can we have, then, to take them seriously when applied to other things, especially given the, the various other considerations that I set out? In any event, that the essences of at least some natural objects are mind-independent rather than conventional suffices for purposes of the, the Thomistic proof for a first cause of existence. 
even if it turned out that the essences of other natural objects are conventional, that would raise no more, uh, that would no more be a difficulty for the argument than is the fact that the essence of a carburetor or a can opener is conventional. Suppose, for example, that it turned out that the essence of a dog is a matter of convention. What really exists, objectively so it might be claimed, are only um, physical particles of certain sorts. And when the particles are arranged in such and such a way, the human being applies the concept dog to them. As people like to put it, there's really only particles arranged dog-wise. It's real cute. Okay. Even in this case, the physical particles themselves would have a non-conventional essence. And if they did something below the level, you're gonna, you, you can't really get rid of it. You can only forestall the inevitable. You can, always, you can only push it down. It's the, it's the frog at the bottom of the beer mug, to use uh, one of uh, J.L. Austin's favorite uh, images. Okay. So even in this case, the physical particles themselves would have a non-conventional essence, and so too, as, we, as we've seen, would the human mind, which applies the concept dog to arrangements of these particles. And the essence of each of these things would be really distinct from its essence, which opens the door to the reasoning of Thomas's argument for a first cause of existence. All you need is essences somewhere. You don't need them to exist everywhere common sense says they are. All right, and since I've reached the end of my outline, I will stop. <laughs>